Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2019, Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal was commissioned to write a poem commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad's completion. The result is West, a translation, a linked collection of poems that responds to a Chinese elegy carved into the walls of the Angel Island Immigration Station where Chinese migrants to the United States were detained. West translates this elegy character by character through the lens of Chinese and other transcontinental railroad workers' histories and through the railroad's cultural impact on America. Today is the 152nd anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, and Paisley Rectal joins us to talk about West, a translation. Paisley Rectal, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. This is a fascinating project. Of course, 2019, the big anniversary, 150th anniversary, um, I understand this This was a, a year in the making preceding that. Yeah, I was commissioned in 2018 for the 2019 uh, commemoration, and I created a multimedia poem, which uh, is the basis for this larger digital project. And it took um, many more years to finish the entire poem, the project that I um basically presented in 2019 for the commemoration was more of a half an hour's worth of poems and videos and things like that. But I wanted to really truly um, translate all, I think it's like 42 characters, um, and do a lot more research. And then I realized that, of course, once I finished that multimedia project, only people who are in the audience could see it. And the question of how to publish something that was uh, multimedia uh, was something I wanted to spend some time thinking about. So I basically launched the site just very recently. I have nine more videos to upload this summer, but those videos, um, the poems themselves have been written. And this this way everyone can sort of see the poem, experience the videos, and um, get a slice of that history. We'll point people to westtrain.org, right? That's the, the site? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and- www.westtrain.org. Or they can just see it off of my website, too. Yeah. Uh, with uh, paisleyrectal.com, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, paisleyrectal.com, yes. Um, so how did you prepare uh, for the, for this? Huh. Well, um, I, for like, I think since 2018, I have read almost nothing but 19th century sources, um, many uh, histories of the railroad, obviously, and scholarly um, takes on the transcontinental, and it's, and it's um, I guess, impact on American culture. And the thing that really struck me was that there was not one single part of American cultural life that was not changed by the railroad and even more so by the transcontinental. It changed our ideas of entertainment um, <laughs> because suddenly things that were in New York could travel to the West and so people were starting to share in American cultural life. It changed our ideas of etiquette because suddenly women that had mostly been spending their time uh, time in the home or in a very smaller domestic sphere were traveling. So you get these very interesting etiquette guidebooks that talk about how you're supposed to behave on the train. Uh, it changed racial um, dynamics, immigration law, obviously. The uh, reason I choose to translate a Chinese poem uh, is because, and, and I start with Angel Island, is because 13 years after the transcontinental was built, the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed. And basically during the building of the railroad, lots and lots of railroad um, companies wanted to uh, get more Chinese into the countries in order to finish in order to finish the railroad. It was considered cheap labor and was a good replacement for slave labor in their minds. Um, but after the transcontinental was completed, people like um, Leland Stanford and Charles Crocker argued that the Chinese should be out and and then the uh, Exclusion Act is, is passed. So obviously it has uh, deep effects on immigration history, but also if it has negative effects on um, Asian American history, it has positive effects for African Americans. A lot of freed slaves ended up working on the railroad. A lot of, um, you know, the, the railroad was a major way of uh, African Americans fleeing the South, going to the North and to the West um, during the Jim Crow era. 
in the late 19th century. Um, interestingly, I also learned that actually slavery was one of the things that, that built basically the 9,000-mile railroad system in the South. So it's got a very, um, you know, slavery is sort of deeply tied into the history of the railroad in our country. And even the idea of slave labor itself influences the way in which we're going to treat different workers from the Irish, Irish to the Chinese once they come in to work on the railroad. Well, let's talk a bit about the, the Chinese. Uh, we, we don't know for sure, right? Maybe ten to 15,000 uh, Chinese brought in to work on the railroad. One of the poignant facts that you, that you give in presentations is we, we don't know a lot of these workers' names. Right. We really don't. Um, the Central Pacific, which hired the Chinese, and in fact 90% of their labor force was Chinese, um, they didn't keep very good records, neither of the people they hired nor of the people who died on the line while they were working it. And so we know that somewhere between ten to 15,000 Chinese were employed to build the railroad in the western half. We know many workers died, uh, especially during um, some of the most dangerous labor uh, blasting through the Sierra Mountains. And um, those work days lasted, you know, for the Chinese, 12 hours uh, a day. And, you know, they had to, to bomb, the, bomb their way to the mountains using nitroglycerin, which was extremely unstable. But we don't know because the Central Pacific refused to keep any records. And we also don't know because the Chinese themselves did not seem to leave any material record in, uh, of writing. So we don't have any letters. We have no journals. We have um, no diary entries. So we have reports of um, people talking about the Chinese. We have photographs from A.J. Russell, who is the official photographer for the Union Pacific Line, who also photographs some of the Chinese workers. But we don't have much that the Chinese have left themselves outside of their own um, remains in places like Kelton or in Terrace, Utah, where there are archaeological sites. And so a lot of work has been done trying to assemble what the lives of the Chinese workers were like through these archaeological remnants. And I find that, you know, sort of a devastating, uh, ghostly kind of presence. And again, one of the reasons why I wanted to start this poem through the lens of a Chinese elegy, um, thinking about people emigrating to the country, specifically to sort of make their way in this country, and, and also to think about um, the ways in which, obviously, this Chinese history, we have a tendency to think of the West as being settled by maybe white Americans, but there's another way we can see that history, which is actually the West was settled in part by the technologies that uh, were created to facilitate that movement. And in that case, then the West was also settled primarily by Chinese and Irish and, and African Americans as well as Native Americans, too. Um, tell me a bit about the Chinese Exclusion Act. This is so, uh, the, these re- workers were recruited, uh, eagerly accepted, right? But then some years after the completion of the railroad, um, uh, I guess, the, the, the not wanted, right? Uh, a danger. Yeah. I, I, all the usual arguments, I suppose. Well, one of the things I would say <clears throat> is that the Chinese were eagerly recruited, but they were never eagerly accepted. Um, and then you could say the same thing about the Irish as well, but the Chinese were far more <laughs> sort of racially suspect and racially excluded, even when they were recruited to work. Um, the Chinese were understood by um, these white overseers and the company owners as being a very cheap labor force, but there were always questions from the very beginning about whether or not the Chinese could or would assimilate. And interestingly, um, the Chinese themselves did not seem to want to stay in the United States. They saw their time in America as a sort of transactional time. They saw themselves as sojourners. They would come and work in America and then would go back to China. And one of the reasons we know that is because so many of the workers paid a kind of insurance to have their bodies, um, if they died on American shores, to have their bodies exhumed after a period of months, um, the bones broken up, put in boxes, and shipped back to Hong Kong, where they would be reclaimed by their families. They never saw themselves as, as becoming American. And that's something that a lot of American journalists even noticed, noted, where they said, you know, the Chinese look down on our newer, rougher civilization, quote-unquote, and they will not assimilate. But that that characteristic, that stereotype of the Chinese that gets developed is one of the things that goes into the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is suddenly it's about 
these um, cheap workers, this cheap um, supply of laborers once so eagerly desired, um, becomes a threat to white working men. Uh, in fact, there's the Working Men's Party, which is started by an Irishman named Dennis Kearney um, in the late 19th century. And it's specifically about getting the Chinese out. He says the Chinese must go. They're a threat. <clears throat> they are a contagion, you know, which might sound familiar to people. They are um, a thing that will ruin chances for white Americans. So the Chinese Exclusion Act, basically, you know, and its, its completion is is uh, um, put into law in 1883, and it lasts until 1943. And the other reason I wanted to start with this is that I'm half Chinese, and actually the Chinese Exclusion Act was something that affected my family. This is not, even though my family never worked on the transcontinental, um, you know, within my own family, my grandparents and, you know, uh, other people who were considered great uncles and great aunts came over as paper sons, paper daughters. There was um, a very fluid kind of way of trying to, to sneak people into the country, people who were not considered American, um, you know, even after they emigrated to the country or were even born in this country. The Chinese Exclusion Act created and solidified this stereotype that the Chinese were perpetually foreigners perpetually economic competition, perpetually racially suspect. And I think that that's something that's come back um, post-COVID or during COVID, I should say, with some of the rhetoric we've seen from certain politicians and the ways that um, people are attacking Asian American um, elders in various communities. And, you know, it's, it's a real fear. It's a pervasive fear. I was just speaking to my mother last night about how she herself is afraid to travel in certain places in Seattle now because she knows that, you know, there are Asian American, you know, older people who are being attacked and spat at and cursed at. And it's it's frightening. This and this seems or seemed very contemporary even before this latest latest wave of discrimination, violence against Asian Americans. Yeah, one of the things that I found really fascinating about studying this period of time, I mean, the transcontinental is being built between 1860, right after the Civil War, so 1865 to 1869. And when I'm studying this period between the, you know, 1850s on to, the, to like the, the, the 19th century, the turn into the 20th century, there's so much that tracks onto what's happening to us now. There was, um, there was a, a major economic crash caused in part due to um, the railroads companies <laughs> uh, kind of go, going under and some nefarious uh, economic activities there. There were pandemics. Um, cholera was a major problem. There were lots of arguments about immigration and race. Um, there were race riots, in fact, um, sparked in part, you know, uh, against the Chinese, but then also in different cities around the South and and in in, in Chicago. Um, Jim Crow laws were, of course, proliferating across the South. So a lot of the rhetoric that we might think of as uniquely 2020, 2021, or you know maybe 2015 to 2021, in fact, is not that unique. I mean, it has very deep roots in American history, and there's something very cyclical about reading about the 19th century and living right now, because so many of the same anxieties over technology and race and labor and illness and who and who is not American, they're just, it just is coming back. It may be slightly different, but it's not uh, historically unusual. I had not known that uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act lasted until 1943. Yeah, oh, it's the longest, and it's the only act that specifically uh, designated a, a specific national or ethnic group from entering the country. It's the first. Um, the second one was, I think, the first executive order that President Donald Trump signed into office, which was the quote-unquote Muslim ban, which has been immediately challenged in court. But the Chinese Exclusion Act stayed, in effect, until 1943, and it, it's the longest living, um, longest one. And But that's, just, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting is that they weren't the first that were sort of targeted. The Irish actually were the first that were targeted. Um, in the 1850s, there was something, and I can't remember the exact name of the act, but it was an act specifically about um, uh, the, against the homeless or the indigent. And they used it in Massachusetts to kick kick out about fifty thousand Irish immigrants, saying that they were um, 
they were poor, they were not contributing, essentially, and so they were not welcome anymore to the country. But that did not become, obviously, a federal uh, law. It was it was a Massachusetts law. Mm. So this was unusual. The Chinese Exclusion Act was unusual because it lasted for so long. It was so specifically targeted, and because it was a federal law. Yeah, it's uh, you know I guess it's just <clears throat> speculation there. Um, but you know each wave of uh, immigrant, uh, you know, not wanted, you know, looked down upon, even despised. But it seems like an extra layer of virulence against the Chinese. I don't, I don't know why you think that is. Race. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're easily racially identified, um, or at least they kind of, you know, generally speaking, the, the idea that they were, um, you know, everything from not quite men to not quite human. Um, there were lots of ways in which the Chinese were um, imagined according to sort of white standards of not just beauty, but masculinity and strength. So uh, that's something that I, I use a lot of documentary language in these poems. And so most, much of the poem is not my language at all. It's, it's language culled from journalists' records, novels, um, travelogues, people looking at and imagining Chinese so that people could sort of see how, um, how from the very beginning um, race colored the very way in which they could imagine who the Chinese were, and, and also gender. So um, a lot. one of the reasons that the Chinese, I, what's funny about it is that um, initially Stanford and Charles Crocker and, and Sturbridge, the people who were running the Central Pacific Line, didn't want to hire Chinese workers because they thought that they were too small, um, too feminine-looking in appearance because the Chinese men had very long uh, braids of hair called cues, um, and their dress appeared feminine. And a lot of them had been working in laundries. Um, so they saw them as sort of feminine, and they portrayed them that way. But then when they actually tried you know, certain Chinese workers out and realized that they were extremely strong um, and very able to do this kind of labor, then they wanted them because, of course, they saw them as cheap. And suddenly the language changed from them being perceived as feminine to them being perceived as like automatons. They started talking about them as being able to withstand freezing, hunger, cold, heat, uh, unable able to endure conditions that no white man could ever endure, um, that they didn't feel things the way that other people feel them, um, that they that they have these minds that are not simple but narrow, but they run in these dull grooves so that they are themselves like mechanics. And what I found fascinating is that when I was doing uh, more research on the workers who are even now working on the transcontinental, a lot of them are um, Navajo or Diné. And what's interesting is that that same language that was applied to the Chinese are now getting applied to the Navajo railroad workers, saying that, oh, they can withstand you know, extreme conditions. They don't feel pain the way other people feel it. And that's been language that was also used to describe certain African-American men, I think, during Ferguson and during, um, you know, during the riots. There's something that they, they, there's something almost inhuman about their strength, their size, their, um, their ability to withstand certain kinds of conditions that makes them perfect laborers. And I think that's a really scary kind of echo of, of this language, which we literally dehumanize and we have dehumanized the people that have been part of this very deep labor process in, in America. You're listening to Access Utah. If you've just joined us, we're, we are uh, talking with Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rechtel. Uh, she's also a distinguished professor of English at U- University of Utah. And in 2019, she was commissioned to write a poem commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad's completion. The result is West, a translation and you can find that at westtrain.org, or you can go to paisleyrectal.com and link over. And we'll get into this uh, poem and uh, hear uh, some of the poems uh, following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Support also comes from 
cash theater company, presenting Monty Python's Spamalot, a new musical lovingly ripped off from the classic film comedy Monty Python and the Holy Grail, showing at the Ellen Eccles Theater August 13th through August 21st. Tickets available at cashtheater.com. Hello, this is Jimmy Berman with the United Way of Cash Valley. Keeping a healthy lifestyle improves how we age, especially our brain function. Here's how you can help decrease your chances of developing dementia. Stay active, go for walks, attend aerobics classes, or work in your yard. Keep a healthy diet, eat lots of fruits and vegetables. As hard as it is, limit sweets and processed foods. Exercise your mind, read books, do crosswords, or try brushing your teeth with your other hand. It may seem silly, but it challenges your brain. And volunteer. Whatever you do, make it a regular part of your life. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cash and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. This Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today is the 152nd anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. In 2019, Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rechtal was commissioned to write a poem commemorating the 150th anniversary. The result is West, a translation. It's a linked collection of poems that responds to a Chinese elegy carved into the walls of the Angel Island Immigration Station, where Chinese migrants to the United States were detained. West translates this LG character by character through the lens of Chinese and other transcontinental railroad workers' histories and through the railroad's cultural impact on America. Paisley Rechtal is uh, with us. So I want to jump into the the poem. Uh, by the way, again, you can find this at westtrain.org or go to paisleyrechtal.com and link over. Uh, so tell us about the Angel Island Immigration Station. So the Angel Island Immigration Station is this, um, uh, basically it's the Ellis Island of the West. It's a place where immigrants um, coming to the United States from usually Asia, um, specifically uh, in this case from um, the Hong Kong region, the southern region of China, would be sent and detained um, sometimes up to 22 months. So while the um, people were there, um, they would be questioned extensively about um, whether or not, <laughs> you know, they had been to the United States before, their familiarity with the culture, did they have family, to try to figure out if these um, were Chinese who had lived in the United States before and were returning, or to see if they would be allowed in, if they had family members, they had somebody who was supposed to be responsible for them. A lot of the people, and, and this is, includes my grandfather, actually, my grandfather um, was, quote-unquote, adopted by an uncle who claimed him as a son, presented false documents in order for my, my grandfather to get into the country. Um, and this is not an unusual kind of scenario. A lot of, you know, Chinese families have um, paper sons, as they call them, you know, people who were claimed as family members in order for them to get into the United States. But a lot of people were sent back. And in the Angel Island Immigration Station, there were certain detainees who were held up to 22 months, as I said, and some fell into depression. They weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to contact anyone unless, you know, the the officers contacted them for them. And a couple fell into despair and committed suicide, especially when faced with the fact of deportation. So the elegy, the Chinese elegy that I use as a lens into the transcontinental is a poem that is elegizing a suicide at um, Angel Island. And uh, the poem that I've created, the digital poem West, in order to access the poem, you'll play a video, and that video um, has um, a picture of A.J. Russell's very famous, iconic um, photo called the Champagne Photo, or East and West Shaking Hands. It's like the Central Pacific and Union Pacific Railroads meeting, and all of these white, you know, workers, you know, shaking hands and, you know, celebrating with champagne. But there are no images of Chinese workers in there. So you're looking at this photo, and then you hear this flood of voices, most um, not speaking any English, 
And then you'll hear um, a, the Chinese poem read in Cantonese, which is the southern dialect. And then you can click into the poem, see the Chinese poem, and click character by character and see the videos open and you know, hear the poems that are read. Well, let's hear the uh, introduction uh, here from, uh, from West, uh, a translation. As twi a dot at a benanita. Tendo for Tego Singam. Then you must epivate to train the music. This is the sound of a train. No podem. Mamma de no, Akarishia, like Tobito no, Tendo for Tego Singam. This is the sound of a train. No viajamos en el tren. Cartos. We do not ride on the railroad. The railroad rides on the train. Okochi so again, this uh, poem uh, on which you base the the, the rest of your your poem, uh, it's an elegy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this elegy I forgot to mention is carved into the walls of Angel Island Immigration Station. One of the things that's really notable about that place is that um, because some of the Chinese were detained for such a long period of time, actually many of the detainees took to carving poems in the walls of the of the uh, station. And many years ago, um, after Angel Island had sort of shut down from being an immigration station, it became a place where actually prisoners of war were held during uh, World War II. Um, and But after that, they were thinking about, you know, sort of sprucing up the place, as it were, you know, renovating it. And they were going to paint over um, the, you know, area where the Chinese had been held, and they noticed all these poems. There's hundreds and hundreds of poems carved into these walls, and you can see them now. So this is one of the poems that was found and was translated. You can find, you know, more of these poems in a wonderful book called Angel Island. Um, I think it's just called Island, you know, the Angel Island poems, and you can see them in Chinese and then read the translations. And that's how I came across the poem. And when I read it, I thought, well, this is really interesting. And one of the reasons I chose it was not just because of its subject matter, which is it elegizes a detainee who committed suicide, but it also has the word terrace in it. And terrace is one of the um, towns in the, the old transcontinental line here uh, on Promontory Summit. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. So you can read the English translation at the very end after you play on the digital poem site. But once you click onto the poems, um, onto the Chinese poem itself, every single Chinese ideogram or character, like I said, becomes another poem, and usually a video poem. And uh, <clears throat> the title is the translation of the character. But then, of course, the translation also occurs in the meaning of the poem itself. So the first one... Sorrowful News um, is about Lincoln, um, Abraham Lincoln's death, but then also Abraham Lincoln's desire or imagination for the railroad. Well, let's hear this. uh, Sorrowful News. Sorrowful News. Sorrowful News, sings the telegram, and Lincoln's body slides from D.C. to Springfield, his infant son, Willie, boxed beside him. Buffalo, Cleveland, Painesville, Ashtabula, two coffins, 1,700 miles, 14 days on 14 railroads. One day, a great line will unite us, the president promised. Father and son displayed capital after capital, Louisville, New Albany, Baltimore, Chicago. The black trains beach upon a tide of roses. Can you believe still in the promise of this union? I saw, General Dodge wrote, a little Negro drop on his knees and offer prayers, while above the dark news thrums on wires, gone, 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 
across poles tall as the ones from which the president ordered 38 Sioux to be hung. That's uh, sorrowful news, the death of the president who had this uh, vision, right? Uh, also, uh, at the end there, uh, of recognition of the fact that this is a complicated history and uh, completion of the railroad uh, hastens the demise of the Indians. Right, yes. I, I wanted to make sure that people could see the complexity of this history. I mean, I, I want, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do while commemorating um, the transcontinental was take seriously the um, project of the transcontinental. I mean, there is something monumental and amazing and truly wondrous about it. And it also comes at a great cost to a lot of people. Obviously, I talk about the Chinese, but of course, once the transcontinental really you know, gets established, it is the death of certain environments and um, food supplies for specific tribal nations. It changes um, the dynamics and social structures of many Native American tribes. It, it leads to uh, reservations. It leads to uh, a real destruction of the environment, too. You know, there, there's positives and negatives around all of this, um, it offers jobs and economic growth and, and security and change for communities. And it also means uh, racist uh, backlash for others. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln himself is a, is a kind of complicated figure. I mean, he's somebody who embraced the idea of a transcontinental railroad very early in his presidency. But he also embraced it not just as a unifying metaphor for the country and understood after the war this would be something that could figuratively and literally stitch the country together, but he also saw it as when the next civil war comes with the West, which he believed would happen, you could send war munitions out very quickly on the railroad. Um, he's somebody who I think a lot of people imagine as a great unifier. But, you know, he also did kill 38 um, Apache Sioux uh, for crimes they may not have actually committed personally. There's all sorts of ways we can look at history. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to do with this project is sort of see all of the interconnections, but see all the ways that something wonderful can also be um, something really problematic, and vice versa. If you just joined us, we're talking with Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal. We're talking about her project from uh, uh, 2019, which of course is the uh, 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad's completion. It's called West, A Translation. Uh, so let's hear uh, another uh, poem. This is uh, called Return. Anything you want to say before we hear this? Yeah, there's um, there's a phrase, uh, if falling leaves return to roots, um, that's a Cantonese phrase, and it refers specifically to the idea that when one dies, one goes back to one's homeland. And so that's, um, that's just something that kind of is in the back of the, the, <laughs> the poem. The other thing is, and I, I, it's too bad, of course, this is radio, because um, there was we we used drones to get some of the um, the footage for these videos, and the drone footage for this video is really really quite beautiful. So anyway, well, we'll point to people to westtrain.org. You can pull up the poem called "Return." Yes, this is multimedia. Um, uh, let's talk about this after after we hear this poem. Uh, so this mm -hmm. is "Return." Return. If falling leaves return to roots. What grows when leaves cannot be gathered? What returns if not the body? What remains if not the soul? Who is to say these graves empty of their bones mean only loss, not that these men escape death's hold entirely? They are not home, but they are not here either, or have become so full of here, we need another word than gone. So throw out the cormorant, its leg tied with silken ropes. Let it drag the air for memory. Over and over, as many times as you want. You can't snare what isn't missing. This country claimed their bodies. It never trapped their souls. So it's the poem Return from West, a translation uh, so you want this to be multimedia. You, you say uh, video, contemporary video from drones. In other poems, you have photographs. Sometimes in some of these uh, poems, you have uh, sound. Um, mm -hmm. That that adds, of course, another other elements of meaning to this. 
Yeah, one of the things that um, I wanted to do, and I was talking um, with Jenny Lynn Merton, who does perpendicular projects, and she was just so central to making and remaking the the videos that I had originally made, just like bumping them up to a much more professional level. Um, but what I, what we wanted to do was to think about a kind of counterpoint or to the poems or to bring out another meaning that the poems had um, that maybe couldn't be recognized just through historical footage, which is the informa- the, the documents that I used in my own videos that were the original videos. So when we used, um, you know, Jen Lillian was like, well, we should, you know, get drones up there and, and look at the transcontinental line, like the environment that it goes over. And it is spectacular country, um, especially around Utah. So we went to, um, I had traveled a couple of times along what they considered the dead transcontinental line around Promontory Summit, but then also the loosened um, cutoff, which goes right through uh, the Great Salt Lake. And they went out with drones and they sort of, you know, took footage of that area too. So you can really see the monumentality of the um, the work that was done, but then also to see the country that the transcontinental travels through. Return is an, uh, a poem, a sonnet that I wrote specifically imagining um, the idea of these Chinese laborers not wanting to stay in this country, that wanting to be returned back to China in death, and that these, you know, they, they left a series of empty graves supposedly across the West. Um, and so the drone footage that she took was of this amazing and very beautiful kind of expansive journey over uh, the Great Salt Lake to sort of suggest the, the traveling of that soul. You said earlier in the conversation that the, the, the workers would even purchase insurance of a kind to make sure their body was returned to, exactly. to, to China. D- did this happen by and large? Were, the, were their bodies returned or were they some of them buried here? Oh, yeah. Here? Okay. <laughs> this is, um, this is a, a big thing. I mean, they did it across the West. Um, and it was, it was so notable that even local, small local papers across the West uh, noticed it, but they didn't understand what it was. So they, it was another reason that the Chinese were considered so racially suspect. They would say things like, the Chinese are savages, they're barbarians, will dig up their dead. They, you know, they, 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 they practically, this is going to cause more disease. This is, you know, this is terrible. What they didn't understand what was happening was the Chinese were digging up the dead specifically to ship them back. Um, and the first shipments of these, these bones, these uh, from minor, usually miners and other people working, um, you know, in Sacramento and in, in San Francisco, these were um, sent to the Tungwok Hospital, and they started occurring around like the 1850s. No one knows because the Central Pacific kept no records exactly how many of these coffin boxes, as they were called, were sent back specifically from the transcontinental. But even now, there's a place in Hong Kong called Tunghua Hospital, and they have hundreds and hundreds of boxes that have been left unclaimed by families. Um, and so these are these are men who were shipped back, but were never reburied anywhere. And that's even sadder to me to sort of think about these men sort of like being eternally homeless. But, um, you know, a lot of these men left China because at that time China was riven by war, and um, was undergoing a massive famine. So, you know, it's very possible that their own families back at home had died. And so when they went to America, um, the great risk was that they would come, they, they would be returned nowhere. Mm. Let's take another break. We'll come back and hear some more poems. Uh, we're talking with Utah poet laureate Paisley Rechtal. In 2019, she, she was commissioned to write a poem commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad's completion. The result is West, a translation. Um, and we'll have more following this break. Who is Jeff Bezos? Jeffrey Preston Bezos is an American internet entrepreneur, industrialist, media proprietor, and investor. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and that is Alexa, an invention of Jeff Bezos's sci-fi dreams. Our vision was that in the long term, it would become the Star Trek computer. What Alexa tells us about the man who built Amazon, the Prime Effect, an on-point special. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. My name is Bailey Kern. I'm a senior studying public relations and sociology at Utah State. With my degree, I plan on becoming the main PR professional for a company and hopefully opening my own PR firm in the future. When I am not working on my major during the semester, I gather stories to be told on UPR. 
Being a full-time student while trying to gain professional experience as a journalist would be impossible without scholarships to the John Morris UPR Student Reporter Fund. You can support me and future UPR student reporters by donating to the fund now at upr.org. This episode was first broadcast in May. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our guest for the hour is Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal. And we are hearing um, some poems from West, a translation. It's a linked collection of poems that responds to a Chinese elegy carved into the walls of the Angel Island Immigration Station where Chinese migrants to the United States were detained. This was commissioned for 2019. And Paisley Rect, I'll understand that you since then have been rounding out this collection. Yeah, um, I'm turning it into a book. Obviously, the website does certain types of digital work um, and allows for, obviously, the multimedia um, aspect of it. You can hear people's voices. You can see many, many historical documents, but you can also see actual footage of the transcontinental line itself. Um, But now that I'm writing it out into a book, I've decided um, half the book is obviously the poems that go in order of the translation, then the translation into English. And then um, at the end is an essay that's that sort of weaves together all of the historical information that I got that sort of went into the writing of each poem, but then also the sort of exploration of my own family's history um, and uh, racial identity in America. Um, so it's sort of a two-part uh, book. And this is important to me also because one thing I didn't mention in, in this website, but it becomes important to the book, is that the poem that opens West, the Chinese poem that's carved into this immigration station, is actually part of a pair. There are two, um, basically, poems that elegize the same detainee, and they are carved in a way that they would reflect each other, that, you know, you could read one and then read the other, and they respond to each other. So in, I like to think of the book as the second poem to the one I created digitally, and I like to think that in the book itself there's the poem and then there's the essay, and they reflect each other as well. And they're all trying to get to the same subject, with, which is basically how do we translate history in a, into a format that we can understand and respond to, that we can feel at some level ourselves be part of. Uh, let's hear another uh, poem from West, a translation. This is Miss Home. Uh, anything you want to say about this before we hear it? Yeah, so this is one of the poems where I think about the effect of African-American labor on um, on the transcontinental. And the reference to Rock Springs is Rock Springs, Wyoming, where a large number of African-Americans settled to um, work on in the mining industry as well as on the railroad for the Union Pacific. So here is Miss Home. Miss Home. Ways to die. Blasting accident, derailment, boiler crack. Crushed between trains crossing in the night. Electrocution, bad food, heart attack. You can work yourself to death, a la John, a la Henry. Or you can stay at home and die anyway. Fist and noose club gun knife in the back. Gossip, sharecropping, bottle of rum with gas-soaked rag. What is freedom but the power to choose where you won't die? What is a train but the self once yoked to terror loosed into a force that glides on heat and steam? You're so far from Mississippi, the UP boss said when we hit Rock Springs. Don't you miss your home? Miss home, I told him. I'm hoping to miss it entirely. That's good. That <laughs> Hoping to miss home entirely, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, new opportunities, I guess, is the part of that. And the other part that struck me from this poem is very dangerous work. Oh, it's extremely dangerous work. And, you know, to speak again about sort of the racialization of the railroad, um, one of the things that I learned that I found kind of fascinating is that in the South, the Southern railroads, as I said, were largely built by slave labor. And it, it created a racial employment pattern that lasted basically all the way through the 20th century to the mid to late 20th century, where the hardest, most dangerous uh, work was given to uh, African-Americans. So um, there's a lot of ways you can die on the railroad, building the railroad, uh, working as a fireman or a brakeman. 
Um, and then the most physically demanding jobs were the porters that were the you know service working jobs. But the you know jobs like conductors and engineers they tended to be white. Um, so I wanted to sort of focus in on the ways in which the train was both uh, you know a great point of economic employment for African Americans, uh, but it was also very dangerous. It was racialized labor that put them in a lot of danger, and um, also of course this is a way of fleeing the South and Jim Crow and some of the, you know, KKK uh, violence that they would have been experiencing down South as well. So it's sort of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of scenario around the railroad for a lot of freed uh, black men who are, you know, working on the transcontinental. But at the same time, you know, there is something I wanted to provide something almost a little playful and tongue in cheek about that, which is, yeah, I am hoping to, I am, I don't miss home. I'm really hoping to miss home completely. Um, so that I can survive. Yeah. We have time for one or two more. Let's let's hear Earth. Uh, what would you say about this before we hear it? Well, one of the things that is really important is well, there's two things that are important about this poem for me at least. Um, a lot of the poems, like I said, actually use documentary material. Um, and Earth again, this is one that it takes its language entirely from the 1862 Railroad Act. But the other thing that's important uh, is the sound, the sound of the telegraph. Uh, railroad and telegraph were basically built almost simultaneously. The telegraph tracked the transcontinental across the West so that the infrastructure of the railroad builds another kind of technological infrastructure. And along with this kind of infrastructure comes the loss of yet another one. So that's all I'll say. So here is Earth. Earth. 1862 Railroad Act, Section 2. That the right of way through public lands granted to said company for the construction of railroad and telegraph, right, power, authority, hereby given to said company to take adjacent to the line, road, earth, stone, timber, said right of way is granted to the extent the United States shall extinguish all lands falling and required for the said, with the welfare of the said, falling required for the said, Indians the said, grant herein made. So that's uh, Earth. Yeah, very interesting. This is this is uh, <laughs> has an interesting effect, um, sort of flat as a telegram, but the but the message here is pretty impactful, right? Yeah, one of the things that really struck me when looking at those railroad acts is that it's it's both really clear and also really not clear what that railroad act is actually saying. There's so much legal language, but when you pare back some of the legal language to get at the very core of the message. It's basically saying um, the railroad and telegraph have the right, power, and authority to take all the lands that they need uh, in order to increase their reach. And that includes taking the lands away from any Native Americans. And when you read that, it, you know, it basically, the government declares that it has the right to take whatever it wants in order to expand its reach. And suddenly you realize, wow, that's um, there's nothing innocent about that, that kind of language, but it takes a while to sort of pare away at that. Um, and, you know, along with it, I think, is the, the language of not just colonial expansion, but environmental um, claiming, because, it, you know, road, earth, stone, timber, anything, anything that it needs, it can have. Um, that's what it's, you know, the government is saying about the railroad. And I was just so struck by that and the flatness of that language, the, the sort of bald declaration of that. And I really love, you know, this the, the typing sound was Jenny Lynn's idea, and I thought it was so brilliant because I think it really hammers home, obviously, that message, but it also links those two technologies again in our mind. And um, it also reminds me, of course, of the physical act of typing and, you know, writing out this, this declaration itself. Well, we are at the end of our time. Uh, we'll point you to westtrain.org. You can uh, you can view, actually, the videos. It's multimedia. 
uh, of the poems. And, uh, or you could go to paisleyrectal.com and link over. And our guest for the hour has been Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal. We've been talking about her fascinating project, West, A Translation. Paisley Rectal, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Thanks so much. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The 1934 drought that ravaged the nation was a natural disaster that came at the worst possible time for Utahns. Find out how officials helped guide the state through this catastrophe with the help from the federal government. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In 1934, a historic drought ravaged the United States at the height of the Great Depression. Utah was hit especially hard, leaving its agricultural economy in peril. As natural resources ran thin, Utah officials appealed to the federal government for help. With good planning and cooperation, Utah made the most of the aid and narrowly weathered the crisis. Utah hadn't seen such little rain since 1856, with precipitation only half the yearly average. Governor Henry Blood sprang into action. Knowing that the state would face losses, Governor Blood hoped that coordinated action between state, federal, and local governments would mitigate the worst of it. Before coming up with a plan, the government needed to see what shape Utah's fields were in. The governor created new appointments, including a state water conservator to make an assessment of the problems that the drought posed. The conservator found that groundwater and reservoirs were drying up too rapidly to last throughout the season. Farmers would need to prioritize watering their higher-value perennial crops, such as orchards, and to let other plants die to preserve water. This put livestock herds at the risk of starvation, since farmers would barely be able to store enough alfalfa to make it through the winter. One historian, Leonard Arrington, wrote that, quote, even the grasshoppers were starving. Governor Blood appealed to President Franklin Roosevelt, who promptly responded with $1 million, With that money, Utah administrators quickly funded hundreds of water conservation projects. Workers lined ditches, developed springs, sunk new wells, and inspected pipes for leaks. The U.S. Department of Agriculture bought livestock that were in danger of starving and distributed the meat to the unemployed. Utah officials also lobbied for long-term solutions to drought problems, leading to the construction of Deer Creek and Pineview Dams. With federal assistance, Utah weathered the worst of the disaster until November, when a few drops of rain finally fell. Utah officials earned high praise from the federal government for their swift and efficient actions, as well as their cooperative spirit. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the Cash Children's Choir, a singing organization for ages 4 to 14 in Logan, enrolling for the 2021 to 2022 season on August 30th. Featuring formal choir singing for older children and engaging interactive music learning for younger children. Information at cashchildrenschoir.org. Support also comes from USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.